Welcome everyone to the very first episode of the Main Vulva, where I, a Main Vulva, take you along for my spiritual learning journey. As I said in my little pre-intro, I've considered myself a member of the Norse pagan faith since 2018, or at least a spiritual person since 2018, and I've really felt lately that I've not been giving it the dedication and love that it really, really needs. Nor do I feel like I have really been giving myself the spiritual journey I'd hoped for when I initially started a few years back. And you know, as a result of this, I feel there has been this lack of attention, and as someone who works with deities, I found myself in a place where I'm getting a lot of signs from some of those I follow and some that I don't that maybe it's time to start coming towards my practice and giving it more thought and attention and time. And when it comes to this format, some of you might be thinking it's a bit strange, perhaps, to share such a personal practice so publicly, and in that I would be inclined to agree. Um, I do know many other witches and practitioners consider their practices to be very personal and private affairs, and I'm generally the same way, except with my coven members, with whom I share a lot of information and experiences quite freely. My goal, however, is not to open up a personal journal necessarily, but more of an educational one. I've noticed a lack of shared information when it comes to the Norse Pantheon and practices, and I'm more than happy to try and educate some of you if you'll let me, in regards to all I happen to learn on my own journey, that is. However strange this form of learning may be, I actually decided to start this podcast on a whim after the idea popped into my head while I was listening to another podcast by, coincidentally, one of my fellow coven members. This podcast is called Homegrown Horror. If you're a fan of mysteries, murders, and the relatively unrecognized state of Maine, I highly recommend a listen. My coven member is joined by a good friend of ours and brings forth very fascinating real-life horrors from my home state of Maine. Circling back, however, hi. My name is Hilda, and I'm a vulva. Cool, you might be thinking, but just what is a vulva? Well, that's what I'd like to cover in today's episode. So, if you like, let's light a candle together. And lose ourselves in the first lesson. The Volu were women that could today be called something close to a witch, shaman, or prophetess. They were said to be very magical and possessed the ability to do many things. Namely, speak the fates of men which can be and will be quoted various times throughout this episode and the sagas. They were most often held in high esteem, traveling from place to place and selling their prophecies, and, coincidentally, they were compensated greatly for their services. Volva, plurally Volur or Volu, go by several names throughout the sagas and literatures, including Saith Gona, Saith Mathur, and Spakona, among others. 
Vulva, however, is the most prominent term, as it likely derives from the word of voler, which means staff or wand. There are few named vulva in the sagas, and we will get to some names later, and there are even fewer descriptions or depictions of what these women looked like or what they actually did in terms of magic. However, within the saga of Eric the Red, there is a rather complete description of what one such Cirrus wore and carried. To give you a full picture, I will be quoting a translation by one of my favorite people, Dr. Jackson Crawford, to describe you these things. When she came in the evening with the man who was sent for her, she was dressed in this way. She wore a blue or black cloak with a neck string over herself, and stones were set into it all the way to the hem. On her neck she had glass beads, and on her head she had a black hood made of lamb skin, and that itself was lined with cat skin. And she had a staff in her hand with a knob at the top. The staff was decorated with brass and had stones set in it up to the knob. She had a belt tied around herself with a large sack on it. And in that sack she kept her talismans, which she needed to make her prophecies. On her feet she had shaggy shoes of calfskin, which had black shoestrings and big tin knobs on the ends. On her hands she had catskin gloves. They were white inside and shaggy. I'd like to say it seems to be believed, as an interesting side fact, that Volu are likely seen wearing catskin due to the connotation between Sather, the magic they practice, and the goddess Freya. However, as Jackson Crawford states in the video, which the translation is within, and in some further research, I was not able to dig up any definitive proof of such a fact. Vulva practiced Sather, which is its own brand of magic in Norse literature, the traditional and more common being called Galdr. Vulva were primarily female, though it was possible for men to practice Sather, it was seen as unmanly to do so. This likely came into play because of the rigid gender roles within Viking society, despite the most prominent god within their pantheon, Odin the Allfather, being a practitioner of this woman's magic. Again, despite some of the more powerful practitioners within the Pantheon, Sather was still viewed particularly in the post-Christian era, era as something negative. Sather can be roughly translated to dark or black magic, something very near to what Christians may call witchcraft today. Sather was performed by singing songs called Varthloker, to call on spirits in their realm. Most often, the vulva or a young woman in her company would sing the song whilst the vola sat upon a hjaller, a high chair or elevated place, so that she could physically place herself within the world of the spirits during her consultation. An example of these ritual songs has yet to be found, but within the tale Grogalder, the vulva Groa casts a specific Varthloker, which she calls Utharloker, to cast a spell upon her son. Bringing up a popular name in the Norse community, Snorri Strelson 
in his Himskringla, within the Yngling saga, the saga of the Ynglings, there is a verse described by Odin that lists a few abilities that a Saithbirthandi, someone who wields the Saither, could have practiced. Again, for this quote, I will be referencing Dr. Jackson Crawford. And Othan knew the skill that was most powerful that he practiced himself, called Saither. Thanks to this skill, he could know people's fates and things that were yet to come, and he could cause people death, or bad luck, or bad health, or take away someone's intelligence or strength and give it to someone else. These are not the only noted things that Sather can do, as within Landamabok, I really hope I said that right, it's noted that during a famine, Ivova used her powers to fulfill the fjords with fish. In the saga of Eric the Red, another Vova also performed a ritual to avoid famine. And with another quote, this time from archaeologist Neil Pierce, this is the known types of Sather. I'm not 100% sure whether these are actually recorded and known, or if they are assumed to be known, if there were things found that would indicate that they're definitively known. However, as you'll hear in a moment, they are fairly well-known things today that have other applications. And I would be or feel safe in assuming that perhaps there was context drawn on a historical basis that would lead to a definitive list of what Sather practices might actually be outside of the songs that were noted, or the practice of the songs casting and communing with spirits from the sagas. Now the quote. Divination, clairvoyance, seeking the hidden, whether secrets of the mind or physical location, healing the sick, bringing good luck, controlling weather, and calling for animals and fish. Sather could also be used in traditionally negative ways, such as cursing an individual or endeavor, blight land, induce illness, give false prophecies, injure, maim, and kill. So, how then does Sather differ from the more traditional magic called Galdar? Galdar, as mentioned, is an addition to the forms of magic within Norse literature, and it is also more commonly practiced. Spell-based in nature, there is a precursor and continuation of an earlier quote that I will recite now to give you an idea of what Galdr consists of, once again from Heimskringla by Snorri Sturlson. Odin shifted skins, and then his body lay as if sleeping or dead, but he was then a bird or an animal, or a fish, or a serpent, and in an instant he traveled to faraway lands on his errands, or on others. He knew how to do certain things with words alone, such as putting out fire, or calming the sea, or turning the winds in any direction he wanted. Odin had a ship called Skitbladnir, which he used to travel over great oceans, and it could be folded up on itself like a cloth. 
Odin kept the head of Mimir with him, and it told him a great deal about other worlds, and sometimes he woke dead men out of the earth, or he sat underneath hanged men. For this reason he was called Lord of the Undead, or Lord of the Hanged. He had two ravens, and he tamed them and taught them language. The ravens flew over faraway lands and told him a great deal of news. Because of these things, Odin became very wise. He learned all these skills by means of runes and songs called Galdrar, meaning magic spell. And for this reason, the Aesir are called the Smiths of Galdrar. I'd like to say, before I continue reading the quotation, from the research I've done, Odin is the most prominent example of magic use, aside from Loki, particularly in regards to shape-shifting. That being said, from the first part of this quote I've read, it does appear to me that Sather and Galder have common aspects, namely the control of weather and the calling of animals. Odin knew where all metals were hidden in the earth, and he knew songs that would open up the earth in front of him, or open up boulders or stones or burial mounds, and he could restrain the inhabitants with words alone, and go in and take what he wanted. Because of these powers, he became very famous. His enemies feared him, and his friends relied on him. They believed in his power and in him himself. And he taught most of his skills to the sacrifice gods. They were next to him in all magical lore and wisdom, but many other men learned quite a bit of it, and from them Galdrar has spread far and been practiced a long time. And people worshipped Othan and the twelve chieftains, and called them their gods, and believed in them for a long time afterwards. Galdr may have also been performed by the use of symbols, as there is a book from the 1600s, after the Christianization of the Viking people, called the Galderbog, which includes various attributed Galder symbols within, both positive and negative. One of these symbols is the Aegishjalmar, also called the Helm of Awe, which is a bind rune. It was utilized to protect one in battle, and I'm not certain whether this book is directly related to other Norse texts, however, so its contents should likely be taken with a grain of salt, particularly when it comes to the meaning of the symbols and their associated rituals. All in all, it seems that Galder may be a more encompassing magic, whereas Sather deals greatly with the notion of predicting fates and altering or changing the outcome of future events. Briefly, I want to touch on the notion of curses as a form of magic within the Norse literature as well, though it may as well be counted as Galdr. Regardless, I mention them separately because curses were, at least in my opinion, an easy everyday magic that most anyone was able to utilize. There were no tools required, no special charms, no special materials, just words. And clearly, I'm not trying to condone the idea of cursing someone in the everyday. But it did happen, sometimes in the sagas especially, particularly with the dwarves. Cursing someone simply entailed, as mentioned before, verbally wishing ill on someone or something. As an example, the most prominent one that comes to mind is the cursed sword called Tyrfing, which had a curse placed upon it. During its creation, 
two dwarves cursed the sword out of revenge against the king of Gardariki, his name being Svafrolami, for capturing them. He captured them. The curse itself entailed that each time the sword was unsheathed, it would have to take a life, and it would be the bringer of three great evils. To accentuate their revenge, the sword was also cursed to kill the king himself. I'd like now to return, as I promised, to listing some of the named volu from within the sagas and literatures, and some of the things that they did. However, this really will just be me giving you some names to the mentioned volva from this point. I've already mentioned all of them, I do believe, and some of them, or one of them, by name already. However, I thought it was important to put this here. First, we have Groa from the tale Grogalder. Then we have Thorbjorger from the saga of Eric the Red, and Huld in the Yngling saga. And though I had previously believed I hadn't mentioned her, the fourth is Thorithur Sundafiler, whom gained the title Filler of Inlets during the famine, where she f used her powers to fill the surrounding fjords with fish, which effectively avoided starvation. I should like to make it clear that historically, in all the written literature, that the Volu accounts at the time were all quite similar. As my notations wane and get smaller, now we come to the gods and goddesses who could also be considered Volur, or just practitioners of Sather. When looking at the gods and goddesses who could be considered practitioners, there is a short list, just like the short list of names of the Volva. And it should be said, too, that the gods, the Asia in particular, were not the only ones who could practice Sather, but the Jotnar, the giants that inhabit Jotunheimer, also are practitioners of this magic, though it's not clear where, when, or how they would have learned it. The primary members of the Pantheon, though I have said both their names various times thus far, are Odin and Freya. Freya herself was credited by Snorri Sturlson with the introduction of Sather to the Asia gods. Despite the connotations with men being considered weak, as I have mentioned before, for practicing this form of magic, Odin is by far the most well-known of practitioners in the sagas. A final note on this. In the prologue of the Prose Edda, Snorri, St Snorri Sturlson also gives quite a lot of details about Sif, the wife of Thor, claiming her also to be a Spakona, or prophecy woman. We've now reached, essentially, the point of this episode where I'm going to bring in archaeological and historical backings for the sagas and the literature, just to bring in some more realism for those of you who may be looking for more of a historical account, perhaps. However, we'll start with tools of the vulva, which they're simple in number. One, 
or perhaps two or three, if we're going to count talismans and songs as tools. Otherwise, the outstanding tool of choice, perhaps an even required tool to practice as a volu, or to practice sailor, was a staff or a wand. Most often, the staffs that are found in grave sites are made of iron, but there's been at least one wooden one found, which is quite remarkable given the fact that most biodegradable material doesn't make it that long. These iron staves were ornamented with bronze, and, returning once more to the saga of Eric the Red, some may have been embedded with crystals. Using that knowledge, I have attained about crystals from my own practice, the ostentatious use of them as decoration could have been to perhaps amplify Sather, or as a form of protection perhaps against anything that may have threatened harm while they divined in the spirit world. Fortunately for me, and perhaps for you, it was not too difficult to locate archaeological examples, um, gravesite finds in particular, that have been confirmed to be, and are otherwise speculated to be, graves of Volu. Within them are some finds that are not so unusual, in particular the aforementioned iron staves or wands. However, there are some more generally unique items as well. Of course, we can't exactly know what these finds were used for, or what they may have symbolized. Just like with a great deal of archaeological discoveries that are not accompanied with literature for confirmation. A 10th century grave in Ramstal, Norway, held the more common find of an iron staff. In Osberg, Norway, a grave was found with two women buried together, that contained a wooden staff as well as cannabis seeds. In addition to a staff in Kopingsvik on Oland, there was a jug believed to be from Central Asia, as well as a bronze cauldron from Western Europe. This vulva was also buried in a ship setting. That is, her grave mound was encircled with stones to replicate the oblong shape of a ship and it also contained the remains of what appeared to be human and animal sacrifices. In Ostergotland, Sweden, again, aside from a staff, the woman was buried with horses, a carriage, Arabic bronze jugs, and two pieces of silver jewelry that resembled a woman wearing a large necklace. Some archaeologists and historians have equated this find to be a representation of the goddess Freya. Now, in my opinion, the most compelling find of a Volu grave site can be found at Frikat. It, in itself, is an interesting location, being a circle fort, of which few have actually ever been discovered. This grave contained a woman within a horse-drawn carriage. She's been buried with the usual feminine goods, including spindle whorls and scissors. But what I find to be the most interesting items were her silver toe rings, two bronze bowls, seeds from the plant henbane. There were also a treasure chest that contained owl pellets, small bird and animal bones, and a silver amulet shaped like a chair. She was also in possession of a brooch which contained white lead, an example of repurposing, which I am a fan of, 
henbane and white lead are especially curious finds. If used in proper dosages, there is no harm. White lead was even used as medicine at some points in history, particularly in skin cream, but a concentration of either could be deadly. As I noted before, it's unfortunate that, to my, no to my knowledge, as I am by no means a certified professional in this field, that there's no evidence to suggest what these items were used for in particular, but simply that they must have held some sort of significance, or else why would have they been buried? It certainly gives me something to think about. I can only say so much about the modern vulva, and I found it quite disheartening that there was only one source out there that spoke about anything in regards to the practice today. I want to specifically note this source, though they will also be in the source credits at the end of the episode, the astatruecommunity.org. The author of this article that I read was very kind in what they had to say, and I will paraphrase exactly what it was. Vulva have a generally solitary practice in this day and age, but each Norse witch do their practices differently. That said, there is no wrong way to practice as a vulva. Overall, vulva feel a draw to help others, to be healers, and to aid when they are called upon. I just find that beautiful, truly. I think that I can say I've definitely learned some things this month in this episode about the vulva. I know this was definitely probably a strange syllabus school-esque format for a podcast and I'm sure that it was obvious at some points I was reading from a script, especially when it comes to words and names and quotes, I wanted to make sure I got them right so I could bring you some accurate information. And it was definitely a lot of information, and some of it was repetitive, some of the words got pronounced incorrectly, and for that I am so sorry. I'm just learning how to read and speak Old Norse thanks to Dr. Jackson's Crawford's lessons on YouTube. And I admittedly am only on lesson one, but it is a fascinating topic and I hope to continue improving as these podcast episodes are released. I also want to say that I cannot definitively say I've given you all of the information. I know I was consolidating quite a bit because when I was taking my notes, it seemed like I was going to have endless amounts of information. I was going to be speaking for ages on this, and really it went by quite a lot quicker than I thought it would. And as I peek down at my phone, of which I'm recording on and looking at my timestamps, it definitely seems like that it goes by faster in speech than it does on page. But I would like to one more time definitely say that I appreciate you coming and listening to me, and I will conclude this week's lesson now. Okay. Um, I hope this has been an informative adventure for you, as it has been for me 
between learning more about the in-depth information about today's topic and learning how to start my own podcast. I've certainly learned a lot. Though it didn't really come to me as a full and solid idea. I'm glad that I've decided to embark on this podcast journey. Initially, I didn't have a posting plan, but for those of you interested, I will be posting one episode a month outside of this two-episode release, and it will be towards the end of the month's month, each month, month, um, and I do hope you'll stay tuned in and follow me on Instagram at main.volva, V-O-L-V-A, to keep up with postings as well as some non-podcast related shenanigans. I'll also be posting promotions for each episode there so that you'll never miss one. I would also once more like to suggest checking out Homegrown Horror here on Anchor or over on Spotify for all of your spooky true crime needs. B, thank you from the bottom of my heart for my intro music and for inspiring me to make this podcast and for being such a lovely friend. Now everyone, you're more than welcome. Stay tuned for vocabulary and their translations as well as credited sources. Otherwise, I hope you tune in next time for more Norse knowledge from me, Hilda, the main vulva. Here is this episode's compiled vocabulary and translations. Vulva, meaning prophetess. Sather, meaning dark magic, black magic, or witchcraft. Galder, meaning spell or incantation. Leod, meaning poem. Vanir, being a secondary race of gods in the Norse pantheon. And Aesir, being the primary race of gods in the Norse pantheon. Saithkona, meaning witchcraft woman. Saithmather, meaning witchcraft man. Spakona, meaning prophecy woman. Volur, plural for vulva, but also meaning staff or wand. Varthloker, meaning a ritual song. Utharloker, a ritual song, possibly to erd the Norn of the present. Siga, one who practices sather. Fjolkuning, another term for vulva. Volu, plural for vulva. Vitki, meaning witch. Orlog, meaning fate. Seth Berthandi, meaning carrier of Sather. Galdrar, meaning magic spell. Fjolkungi, meaning much knowing. Gidjunum, meaning goddess or priestess. Blot Godingnum, meaning god or priest. Hjaler, meaning scaffold. And Spakonor, plural of Spakona, and another term for vulva. Some of these vocabulary words did not make it into the actual cut 
of the episode, but because of their relation to the topic at hand or to some of the words that were spoken, I thought I would include them. Some of these vocabulary words did not actually make it into the cut of the episode, but because of the topic at hand or because of their association with some words that were used, I thought they ought to be included. My credited sources for this episode are Dr. Jackson Crawford on YouTube and his videos The Vulva, Norse Cirrus, and Sather, Sather Magic and Gender, Curses and Cursed Objects in Old Norse, and Old Version Norse Galdr and Galdralgo. Also, ancientorigins.net, nnatmus.dk, and their articles, A Cirrus from Freikat, and The Magic Wands of Viking Cirruses. Myths and Folklore Wiki, Skialdin.com, and their article, Vulva, the Viking Witch or Cirrus. Norse-Mythology.com, and their article on Sather. TheAstruCommunity.org, and N.Wikipedia.org and their page on Tearfing. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the next one.